Hey, 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 what's up, guys? Omar here with the Team Watchers Talk. Thanks for tuning in here this evening. This is uh, one of the last, uh, actually, one of the later shows I've done in uh, in a very long time. I usually cut it, a, you know, call it a night at uh, six o'clock. But in this case, I have, uh, you know, a special guest and uh, a good friend of mine, Bruce Cunningham. But before we get into that, just want to let you guys know that uh, this show and our Summit Forgery Unmasked coming up on March 27th is sponsored by Paul Wallace, The Scars of Eden, which is now available for pre-order at Amazon or any other bookstore that uh, you fancy. So uh, check it out. This is uh, recommended by the legend, Eric Von Daniken. And uh, it's been compared to uh, The Chariots of the Gods. So uh, an excellent read. Uh, I've read it and uh, it's a great book. So you guys uh, should definitely check that out. Now, with that being said, uh, sitting here with a buddy of mine that uh, you know I've been streaming with for... Uh, for a number of years now, going back about like really to the roots of uh, Watchers Talk when we first started. And uh, but Bruce lives over in uh, Southeast Asia and uh, sometimes the Internet is not all that great. So if we have uh, you know any issues tonight, please keep that in mind. And uh, that's one of the reasons why Bruce hasn't been on Watchers Talk in a long time, because he had no Internet on the island that he lives at. And he's coming at this from San Francisco. What's up, Bruce? <laughs> hey, Omar, glad to be back. I mean, it's been at least a year since we've chatted all. And, yeah, absolutely. Uh, probably even longer, yeah. It's way cool, man. Yeah, I'm totally, totally excited to have you on tonight. Last night when I spoke to you, I was totally excited. I was telling my wife, I was like, holy shit, got to talk to Bruce tonight. It's been like almost a year, year and a half since, uh, you know, we had a face-to-face -face chat. So that was pretty cool. And, uh, you know, I'm really happy that uh, you're here on uh, Watchers Talk this evening. And, um, you know, we're going to talk about some uh, interesting stuff tonight, eh, Bruce? Uh, there's been a lot going on. We haven't uh, really caught up in the last uh, year and a half. Well, we talk over Messenger almost on a daily basis, but, uh, you know, never, uh, you know, like a face-to-face -face conversation like this. So uh, it should be interesting. And, um, you know, let's get into it, brother. All right. Any, anything? Uh, I guess I'll inform the, you know, the, the listeners I live in the Philippines on a small island chain in Cebu, which is in the middle of the Philippines of 7,000 plus islands. And the area of the Philippines that the island is on is called the Visayas, which is a Sanskrit word. So it means that odds are the ancient Philippines would have been Vedic uh, Hindu culture, you know, long before Magellan was here, which... Most of the history the, the locals know only starts in 1521. Yeah, not to also to mention uh, Philippines would have been about 12,000 years ago part of uh, Sundaland, eh? That uh, Donnie well, Arwanto is yes, working on. Yes. Tell us about yeah. that a little bit, Bruce. Well, I mean, if you look at those maps that uh, you could probably bring up of what uh, it, Southeast Asia, what they call Sundaland now, looked like back then. Yeah, everything was connected. I mean, it was Indonesia was a peninsula. Uh, Philippines was just barely connected. But you've got uh, things like the Banawi rice ta terraces up in Luzon that are the, at one time, they probably still are, but the biggest rice terraces in the world. And one of the theories of some of the authors, such as Frank Joseph, that it was the breadbasket for the ancient continent of Lemuria or Mu. And I mean, it's it's a really cool theory because the possibility, it, you know, these terraces are just massive. You know, yeah, I'm well bringing up as, the... Uh... 
image here, Bruce. Okay, yeah. You know, as well as all this area has so much history to it, like uh, it's definitely connected to uh, Stephen and Evan Strong's research of out of Australia theory. I kind of pointed out the out of Australia and Sundaland theory because even Australia was connected, as you can see on, on these maps. There, you know, 12,000 years ago, the ocean was less and there's little doubt and everything here is, you know, we have, I have been to Angkor Wat uh, six or seven times now, done several tours. The last tour had Dr. Sam and Valerie on it, actually. Uh, they were with me. So it, the the Vedic influence in this part of the world is just absolutely massive. You don't see it in the Philippines currently, but it had to be back before before the Spanish were here. Well, that's a pretty old culture that we're talking about, too, right? When we look at uh, what's that uh, Philip Lindsay does, um, um, Hidden History of Humanity, um, you know, that's going back hundreds and thousands of years, if not millions of years, and the Vedic influence was uh, there at that time, and uh, it's lived on right up until today. Yeah, I mean, if, if you look, almost every ancient site in the world has some kind of Vedic carving or drawing on it. Uh, even Gebekli Tepe, I remember when I first met Andrew Collins, I had told him about the, you know, the numbers 54 and 108, and he just like come on court, like, wow, I was wondering why those numbers, you know, were everywhere at Gebekli Tepe. So it's it's literally the Vedic influence. Is Can you give us a, a brief explanation on those numbers, Bruce? Uh, the Vedic ancient or uh, the most powerful numbers are 54, 108, and all the mathematic derivatives of such. Like if you see a Krishna priest, he's going to have a, a set of beads that are 108 beads. Uh, many Buddhists will too. So it's just the sacred numbers, and they're everywhere. I mean, it's it's the Vedic influence. If you're familiar with any of uh, the guy's name is Graham Kearsley, He's done some books on the Mayas, the Incas, and the the Vedic roots. Even Wayne May uh, had a one of the ancient American magazines several years that was connecting the the Vedic roots along with the Mormon roots and the Mayans, and you know, very very interesting. Do you think uh, Vedic roots uh, may be connected somehow to uh, Lemuria or to uh, Atlantis? Uh, being that it's so old, I'm wondering if it's, uh, you know, like a carryover from the previous civilization that's kind of lived on. Well, actually, what got me in, interested in the Vedic research is when I was reading the first time uh, James Churchwood's Moo books. I looked at all these symbols that he had in those books, and so many looked like Vedic symbols, and that's kind of what got me on this journey to, to go that direction. That was where I found Stephen Knapp, and we become close friends. He's, he's authored many ancient mysteries of, of the Vedic Empire and such, and he was, uh, he was my host on the very first uh, tour I ever did at Angkor Wat. Very nice, very nice. Uh, so, okay, let's uh, get off that subject and jump into something else because, uh, you know, I haven't talked to you in such a long time, so I just want to jump from piece to piece to piece. Now, one of your uh, bucket lists uh, to do is uh, non-modal. 
Oh, right. So with uh, so with this whole uh, you know this uh, this the situation that we're going through, uh, when it's over, uh, do you have any plans on uh, doing any tours or uh, taking a group to uh, Nanmadal to learn more about it? And for those that don't know what Nanmadal is, can you uh, give us a quick uh, lowdown on um, on the uh, Nanmadal site, please? Okay, Nanmadal is an ancient megalithic site, almost as isolated east Easter Island. It's out in the Pacific in the Caroline Islands, and it's uh, Micronesia, and it's used to be called Ponape Micronesia. Now it's called Pompeii Micronesia, which is very confusing with the site of the volcano in Italy, <laughs> but it's it is spelled different. But yeah, it's a megalithic city of these 30, 60 ton logs, basically. Uh, you can uh, search it up and it's, it's just amazing. And it's truly in the middle of the ocean. It goes into the water, it goes into the ocean, but I guess it's very uh, dark water and difficult to see. I know some, there's been very few people have ever been here. I mean, I've only met two people ever that have been to this site. And as you see from these pictures, if you were to punch up the uh, Gunang Padang site in It's Indonesia, the same thing. Oh, my gosh. It's so similar. It's, it's frightening. And if Namadal is 25,000 years plus, even though the mainstream scientists have Namadal, only 2,000 years old, but if it's as old as Gunang Padang, we're talking 25,000 plus, and it sure makes sense when you, you know, as you look at these pictures, it, it is definitely number one on my bucket list places to go if this crazy, silly episode that we're in right now ever uh, <laughs> stabilizes a little bit. It's uh, totally an impressive sight. I'm just uh, pulling up uh, Gunang Padang. Uh, this is uh, actually one of the first sites that uh, got me interested in uh, in archaeology because uh, when I was looking at this place, I was like, "Oh my God, this is um, this is insane!" Like those granite logs, like right here, right? Uh, yeah, they're they're actually know, basalt. They're actually basalt. Yeah, they're basalt. Yeah, logs. that's this is what uh, is, is, I guess it's supposed to look like, eh? And uh, and then when you look at you know these uh, stones right here; these round stones littered everywhere. Uh, it, it looks exactly like uh, what's going on at Nanmadal. Now, since we're here on uh, on this site, uh, Bruce, what do you think caused uh, this uh, pyramidal structure to collapse into uh, into what we see today? Like it almost looks like it blew up and and it sent all these basalt logs, like you know, squandering everywhere. Do you think? Uh, what do you think happened? Well, I mean, I would say the age, Omar. I mean, when you're talking, if it's really twenty-five to 30,000 years old, you mm -hmm. truly imagine how long that is, how many earthquakes. Indonesia is the most geoactive place on the planet. So you can bet there's been many earthquakes. They, they've got live volcanoes going on pretty well year-round. I mean, so it's so geoactive in the Ring of Fire that that would be my, you know, my guess. I'm no... No expert on such things, but that would be you know, my my best uh, my best guess. There's a little speculation. Uh, you know, we got uh, Chris Dunn uh, with the uh, Great Pyramids. Uh, you know, he uh, has suggested that uh, they were 
you know, power machines or energy machines or, you know, something towards those lines. And then we have, uh, you know, John Shaughnessy, who talks about uh, pyramid lensing, gravity lensing. And then uh, and then now we have, uh, you know, this Ganong Padung site, which it looks like, you know, from from what I'm seeing, it looks like there was an explosion. Right. So do you think, you know, just out of speculation and that, you know, so long ago, whenever it was, something happened in the Earth's energy grid line that connected all of these pyramids together that, uh, you know, it just kind of backfired. You know how it's uh, with electricity, uh, it kind of backfires and uh, things just explode. Uh, do you think something like that could have happened? Because when I look at, like I said, when I look at Gonang Padang, it looks like the, the tip of the mountain, you know, just literally just exploded. And it doesn't look like a volcano either, right? Because there's, uh, it looks like, you know, a lot of mud. Yeah, it, it's definitely highly possible with, with that energy grid. But again, when we talk this time, we know for, a, you know, pretty much fact that there was a giant worldwide cataclysm 12,000 years ago or so. Mm-hmm. And who knows how many before that. So, yeah, that's that's going to take a lot deeper research. No, that's and, a great point. It could have been a yeah. tsunami as well, right? That could have come yeah. in and just uh, knocked the pyramid into uh, oblivion. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, here, let me remove this one as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, Chris's work is is beyond brilliant, uh, making people <clears throat> in the world understand those pyramids weren't tombs; that they were some kind of energy, some kind of machine. Some, you know, they did they had a purpose. It wasn't just to bury some pharaoh. It was really he was the uh, a pioneer that um, you know that broke the barrier into the way we perceive pyramids today right prior to chris dunn it was tombs this and tombs that and then when chris came along then uh, you know people began looking at these pyramids from a different perspective and from a different light you know then we have all kinds of um, you know theories that really evolved from uh, from what chris was saying yeah without a doubt in fact there's a book called stones of knowledge seeds of plenty i can't remember the author's name but he went around to all the pyramids in the world that he could and place seeds on them and these seeds grew two to four times more than reg- the seeds that weren't on the pyramids so the, the pyramids as we see you know in maya land that has you know thousands of them and they're discovering with the satellite radar technology mir- nearly weekly new ones they they had many uses it appears i mean you know john shaughnessy's uh work that he does on it 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 seems that it's they had endless value that is why the ancient peoples built them across the planet yeah there's like tens and thousands of them but there's uh you know when we look at the pyramids, something interesting I found a few years back when uh, when I had my website and uh, my attempt was to, um, you know, pinpoint um, all the UFO sightings and uh, alien abductions, kind of what have you. And then I got on to uh, marking out the pyramids all across the world. And I began to see this, um, you know, pattern coming out where we had these pyramids in uh, Central America. Then we had these uh, pyramids in uh, Bosnia and in Egypt. And then we had these pyramids in China. And then when you looked at it from up above, you know, it represented, again, the uh, Orion 
the Orion Belt. And when we look at these pyramids on the ground, uh, you know, they're placed in uh, Orion's uh, Orion Belt. Like we have the two pyramids and one is offset. And then when we look at the global map on these pyramids, how they're put together on pretty much on the very same line. And the Chinese pyramids are offset compared to the ones that are in Egypt and the ones that are in Central America, indicating that, uh, you know, there was a higher intelligent plan here to plan it out even that far on a global level that, uh, you know, this is somehow all connected to uh, to the Orion Belt. Now, I know you're an educated guy. So what is your thought on, um, you know, on all these pyramids and all of these uh, monoliths and megalithic sites across the world that continue to point their finger towards the Orion star system. Uh, you know, like what's going, do you think that we're actually from the Orion star system or we had somebody visit us from there? And then ever since we've just revered that, um, that star system. There has to be some serious connection. There's no doubt. I mean, like you said, uh, even Gary Davis worked in Arizona and um, New Mexico that, has all those ancient Anasazi sites mm -hmm. all connect to the Orion's Belt. He calls it the Orion Zone. And and other star systems, too, that are still connected with the Orion's Belt. Uh, Andrew Collins worked with the Cygnus. He is convinced that you know many sites uh, mirror the Cygnus system. The, uh, the Angkor complex mirrors the Draco system. And if I'm not mistaken, those are all very part of the Orion, Orion star system. Yeah. So, I mean, so, so definitely, yeah, definitely the uh, the ancient alien or the ancient astronaut theory is like really relatively at play here because, you know, I can, you know, I don't want to, you know, I'm not the kind of guy that likes to give, uh, you know, aliens the credit for the work that, uh, you know, humans have done. Um, you know, I'm truly of the school that uh, humans were, uh, you know, extremely advanced at some given point previous to this 12,000 years ago. And we used that technology to build all of these megalithic sites across the world. And that they're in fact probably a lot older than uh, 25 or 30,000 years. Because when you look at a structure like the Sphinx that was buried in sand for thousands of years, uh, you know, and the water damage that it has, it's just not possible. We're looking at a date like a lot older than that. Right. So for me, I'm in the play. I'm in the school that I'm thinking that somebody came here a long time ago that we had communication with or we either came from that star system and uh, and then built all of these uh, structures across the world. And then that civilization just kind of, you know, either phased out into a different vibrational field or, uh, you know, just simply died out and uh, or dispersed. And they're still among us. What do you think, Bruce? Well, I mean, even when I was a was a kid long before I got into, you know, researching this kind of stuff, I always thought that the human truly just doesn't, doesn't fit. I mean, the dominant species would seem to be the elephant, the bear, the lion, you know, we destroy our own stuff. We, you know, we're destroying the planet, uh, the silliness that's going on now. I won't even get into, uh, it seems we don't fit that. Yeah. We're connected to the, the DNA of the planet, that's a scientific fact, but it surely seems that part of us came from somewhere else. I mean, we could get into the Sitchin theories and many other theories, but it just seems we don't fit. You know, and the whole, uh, you know, our DNA, you know, being part of this planet, um, 
you know that to me is you know really lazy thinking because when we look at like panspermia for instance and um, you know things events like that that have the possibility of seeding life on uh, you know really any planet that can host it so for us to uh, you know say that uh, you know where our dna comes from earth and this is kind of where we're connected you know, I'm not so sure about that because, you know, human species uh, could very well be living on other planets and they're so advanced that they're just really going from, you know, solar system to solar system and uh, just seeding um, their, you know, colonies essentially is what they're building. And uh, maybe sometimes they lose contact with these colonies and they forget who they are. And, uh, and then end up in a situation such as uh, the type of situation that we're kind of stuck in of this, uh, you know, engineered amnesia that, uh, that we're going through uh, for the last several thousand, uh, you know, years. But, you know, I'm a firm believer that prior to 12,000 years ago, uh, we were, uh, you know, just as advanced as any gray alien that, uh, that's out there. But, uh, you know, we just happened to come across an unfortunate event that caused our planet to go into... Uh, you know, a mini ice age, and that kind of destroyed us, I think. Well, when you go back, when you're talking millions, hundreds of millions of years, uh, the possibility of an advanced extraterrestrial race going through the, the galaxy and terraforming planets. Uh, if you've talked, uh, when you interview Dr. Sam and Valerie, that's that's one mm -hmm. of their theories. Uh, so yeah, that I, I, yeah, I, I believe the same thing. You know, we there might be the same type of life forms that are here on Earth that uh, could be on another planet that is, uh, you know, something similar to the Earth as in this Goldilocks zone, and uh, you know, it's habitable. And uh, whatever comet or meteor that struck us that uh, brought life to this planet uh, that might have struck that planet as well, and uh, life may have evolved. Uh, you know. It, in the same process, if we're looking at a blueprint, right? If you, you know, if you have one blueprint that's going to work on this planet, it sh should work the same on another planet, given that it might be just a tad bit different because of, you know, radiation or because of light or because of the air. But, uh, you know, I'm thinking it's kind of similar. So, yeah, that's kind of where I'd, I'd lean towards, Bruce. <laughs> it certainly could be. I mean, yeah. you know, when I, when I wake up in the morning, you know, being on an island, I live on a, you know, a small island, so there's no lights around. And I see all those stars, you know, it's almost insane to believe that, you know, we're the only life out there. And the stars we're seeing are just our single galaxy, for crying out loud. The universe has got, you know, truly a bazillion more stars than that. So it, it truly makes sense that if somebody did survive without, you know, nuking themselves or whatever, that, you know, how far advanced could they be? You know, when you look at physics today, like the string theories and, and these amazing theories that, you know, most scientists believe dimensions are absolute now that there's at least several dimensions. So the, the concept yeah, there's, is just yeah, there's, endless. Yeah, there's like this short uh, electrical membrane. Uh, I read an article not that long ago that said that this really small membrane that is separating us from another dimensional reality. And, uh, you know, and if we zapped it with enough charge, that we can open up that dimensional route and travel into it. But I don't know whether they have or not, or, uh, you know, whether they're just beginning to do it. Uh, I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, this dimensional space that we live in right now here, you know, is really part of 
something that is, uh, you know, layered like an onion. You know, there's something on top of this, on top of this, on top of that, because other beings, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, these lost civilization, they may have phased out of the vibrational, uh, you know, distortion of the earth uh, in the field in which we occupy right now. And they may occupy the same place in the same time right now, but just in a totally different vibrational field. Uh, you know, I, maybe a higher distortion or something I'm, like that. I'm totally you. You look at these civilizations: the Maya, the uh, the Anasazis, the uh, in the Angkor Wat area. All these people just disappeared. We have all these theories that they killed each other in a war and they starved and this. There's no evidence of any of that. They just disappeared. When yeah. we were at when we were at Borobudur, we met some. Uh, native aboriginal type guys that we were introduced to from our friends and that's exactly what the one guy said said those people are still here yeah I, exactly I truly said yeah. yeah i believe that they are they're just vibrating at a different frequency than uh than we are right and that's that's kind of where uh you know this whole new age school uh comes into play today you know i'm not a big follower of the new age i'm more you know into the consciousness kind of guy Right, but it does kind of make sense that uh, we are going through some sort of, you know, energetic change, and you know whether it's for good or it's for bad, we're not quite sure. But I th I'm thinking the same thing happens again and again and again, where these past civilizations, if they, you know, they reach their Kundalini, for instance, right, or they reach a Zen as a hive yeah. mind together, right, where they love and respect one another and have empathy for living things. I think when a society comes together like that, then you ascend to that, uh, you know, to that higher distortion. But you still remain here on this planet, you know, is because, like I said, it's like a layer of onions. It's just, you know, it's just layered on top of one another. And they're they're all here. Atlantis is still here. Lemuria is still here. Um, all of it. Yeah, so, possible. Uh, especially when you talk Lemuria, you know, the Mount Shasta thing. I mean, mm -hmm. that's, that's got yeah. a lot of evidence to it. I mean, that's... A lot of bizarre thing happens there as well. Yes, yes. So uh, the possibility, again, you know, say the word endless a million times, but uh, it is possible. Yeah, I was watching a debate here this evening about, uh, you know, something towards this line, right? And uh, we're talking. Uh, they were talking about Atlantis and uh, Lemuria and other things. And, uh, you know, there was, uh, you know, a mainstream thinker. And uh, and then we have uh, a fringe thinker, right? Uh, kind of thinking outside of the cube, uh, trying to put all the connect all the dots together. And I think that's kind of where we're stumped right now as a civilization, because we've been fed so much misinformation about everything that people are, you know, challenged when uh, you know their thinking is challenged when somebody comes along with an outside of the cube kind of thought, right? And we need to snap out of that. Like, I, I see a comment here from uh, Serena Agar. Uh, it says, uh, I think that's the problem a lot of the time. People who live in nature more, they always have connections and culture to the stars. And I think it's just that they look up. Light pollution is awful. Yeah, I agree. Light pollution is an awful. But, you know, the connection that you have with the land and the stars, you know, essentially what I'm getting from this is you're more open to new ideas and suggestions compared to a person who lives in a congested city. Oh, I, I would hope so. I, you know, the open mind, you know, you look at what the advanced archaeologists and researchers are doing, 
the idea is to be open-minded. How are you going to find the truth if you're just, hey, this is the way it is. This is what I told you, and this is a fact. Well, we get nowhere. You know, like I said, the, the, the pyramids were tombs, and this can't be done, and this can't be done. Well, I think when we look at just our short lives, anything can be done, literally. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, we went, uh, you know, Gene Cernan went from uh, horse and buggy uh, to the moon, right? Uh, the last person to uh, walk on the moon. When was that? 1972. Uh, you know, I'm not of the school that, uh, you know, that we didn't land on the moon and things like that. I would rather give humanity uh, credibility until, you know, it's proven otherwise, right? So for me, the way I see it is that if we've gone from horse buggy to the moon, then uh, then we're capable of really doing anything that we want, like really oh. anything. And we can overcome like this little scenario that we're going through and come out of it, uh, hopefully on the better end of things, because this has really given people the opportunity to uh, reflect and, uh, and, and think in within themselves and realize that the things that they were doing really were not, uh, you know, per helping progress their lives, right? They were stuck in that loop. You know all about the loop. I know all about the loop. Everyone that's in the audience knows all about the loop, and that's really what it is. Oh, no doubt. We're we're stuck now more than at any time in known history, and especially in our lifetimes. I mean, since World War II, I guess we're we're facing our own version of World War Three, is how I put it. And as we've been put in a survival mode, but at the same time, we have to move on. We have to move forward, and you know, we've got to. Sticking together, we are one race of human beings, and if we really would stick together, you know, the, the saying that you were referring to, what the mind of man can perceive, he can achieve. And That's right. You know, Amen to that. Yeah, and if we could all stick together instead of, you know, warring with each other, even now you got people in their own country, like in, you know, in the U.S., that are, you know, on two sides of a coin and try, instead of trying to solve a problem... Mm -hmm. You know, they want they want to blame the problem and that never solves a problem. Yeah, division is conquering. So yeah. let me uh, let me let me switch subjects here, Bruce. And, uh, you know, I was just thinking you're you're so close or, you know, are even part of, uh, you know, the ancient land of Sunderland. And you've lived in the Philippines now for a number of years. For as long as I've known you, you've lived in uh, in the Philippines. Um, have you come across any uh, you know ancient archaeological sites uh, such as Nan Madal or Ganang Padang or anything like that in your neighborhood? Uh, nothing big. Now, when I was working with Klaus Dona a few years ago, he had done a satellite scan in Mindanao where we uh, had the conference in 2017 with. Klaus, Dr. Sam, Valerie, and, and others, Danny, Gerwanto, and he he had found what appears to be an ancient city or pyramid complex, and that was just one small scan, because what people have to understand... Is that LIDAR? Know, uh, no, he has, it's called uh, satellite radar. Uh, okay. A friend of his has some way of doing this through the satellites. I don't mm -hmm. know, you know enough about it, but that's an example of what is possibly out there because the philippines every single southeast asian country has pyramids mm -hmm. okay, or ancient cities the philippines doesn't well of course they do they're just covered with thousands of years of jungle and to let people know i live on this island if i clear the land within a matter of months it looks like it's several hundred years old i mean wow that fast eh? the level yeah 
it grows at a level people can't comprehend. So, you know, I guess we were lucky that Stevens uh, back in the 1800s was able to find all those Mayan cities because, you know, they're covered. Angkor Wat sent, you know, and all those temples sat all those years undiscovered until that French archaeologist just happened to come uh, come across it. So, yeah, it, who knows what's out there? Jeffrey uh, I Boyd. found there's a, some uh, standing stones in another island mm -hmm. uh, real close to me in uh, Billiran is called. There's some standing stones. So it's, you know, who knows what what is buried in thousands of years of jungle. Jeffrey Boyd well, uh, Jr. Jeffrey Boyd is, uh, you know, doing a lot of work uh, related to what uh, LIDAR. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he uh, managed to come across uh, images of, um, of Angkor Wat. And uh, now when we look at uh, the Angkor Wat, Wat LIDAR images, you know, you can see that there are underground chambers and, uh, and such uh, underneath the structure. And, and not only that, but when you look at it, it looks like a huge motherboard of a computer. Right. Yeah. Like why that design, Bruce? Like, uh, you know, like why create something to look like a motherboard if, you know, you didn't know that people in the future would advance to such a you know level where they would recognize what a computer chip looks like? Well, an example from that, and I had just saw it on one of the old In Search of episodes, is there's some petroglyphs in the Southwest Americas that look identical to the microchip and the circuit board. And mm -hmm. all these specialists have said, that's what it is. There's no doubt about it. And so it, it's it's mesmerizing. Yeah, even when you and look then, at the pyramids in uh, central to, Mexico, same thing. Yeah. And when you get back to Angkor, most of us believe, okay, Angkor, I mean, there's Sanskrit writing that says it was built sometime in, uh, after zero AD, you know, 2000 years. Mm -hmm. But with like Jeffrey's work, it seems like there's no doubt it was built on something much more ancient. I mean, because it, it just goes back way, way too far. Yeah. Okay. The LIDAR. There was a special on TV a few years ago where they did the very first LIDAR there. And they found so many homes like what you're seeing on that, that pic, green picture on the left that they said the, the population had to be literally in the millions just to manage those temples wow eh? millions and yeah, I mean, yeah, well, at least five hundred thousand just to manage the angkor wat temple itself so i mean it's it was one amazing and the site is huge yes oh and there's a plethora of temples there are so many angkor tom you know you're famous with the uh uh Priyakan, uh, what's the one with the, oh, the Angelie Jolie movie? Uh, yeah, the uh, one with the tree right there. Yeah, the one with the trees right, right there. Yeah, right there, yeah. Uh, that's where the dinosaur is, Stegosaurus. In fact, Andrew Collins, yeah, yeah. when we were there, he, na he named the uh, the Stegosaurus Steggy. So that's uh, <laughs> Steggy the Stegosaurus. Uh, but yeah. And you got all these temples. There's just literally a plethora. You you go there for two weeks, and you you can go to a different temple every day. I mean, you're you literally get templed out. There's so many. Now, uh, let me ask you, Bruce. Uh, 
we see like stonework in um, in Egypt, for instance, uh, where they have these temples and they're using stones that are like megatons. Um, in uh, in Angkor Wat, like we were just looking at, uh, you know, their statues and stones. They don't appear to be like megaton. Uh, you know, megaton stones. They just look like your average, you know, maybe 50 pound brick. But are they just like a 50 pound brick or are no, they like no. much, much heavier than that? Oh, yeah. No, no. Most are like you're in your one to three to five ton range. You're, you don't have the 30 ton blocks much. But mm -hmm. you're, yeah, a lot of those blocks are in the three ton range. So they're, they're still still mega, mega blocks. Do you and think they may be like geopolymer? um you know activity involved here because really when we think about you know like earlier i was listening about uh you know the quarry of egypt where it's 60 kilometers or 600 kilometers from uh you know from its origin and these guys had to drag all these stones back i'm wondering if they didn't remove all these stones and smash them down into rubble and then bring them onto the site, melt them down, and pour them into uh, into molds. Uh, you know, we that are so tight that you can't stick a piece of paper in between them. And we see that like right across the world. Do you think that that type of technology might be at play here instead of these guys just hoofing like sixty ton rocks? I think there's no doubt at all. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the the original originator of that work is a guy named uh, Devotis, I think. Yeah, Devoski, uh, I think, uh, something like no, that. No, not ski, yeah, but Devotis. And then Jeffrey Boyd since then has taken that over. And I, it looks like there's doubt because Angkor Wat itself has more tonnage of stone than the Great Pyramid. Mm -hmm. Every single centimeter is carved. Every millimeter, centimeter in the entire complex almost is carved with no mistakes. So it seems to me it would be much easier if that was wet and you could have put all that carving while the stone was soft yeah it makes a lot of sense yeah that's uh, i i lean that way as well because uh you know unless we had like laser technology uh back in the day and we don't see any evidence of that on uh you know anything yeah. across the world so to me it makes a lot more sense that uh you know they brought in rubble melted it down maybe they used uh you know crystal power maybe they used solar power they had some sort of technology to uh melt these stones down and poured them into stones because when we look at those uh you know sites at uh olayan tambo in um you know in yeah, uh, yeah. south america you know they look like a corn cob right and uh you know and imagine the task of you know engineering or cutting those stones and placing them it almost seems inhuman Right. And uh, and then I think that's why people say, oh, the aliens did it. Only the aliens could have done it. But, you know, if you're familiar with like concrete work or construction work, oh, yeah. then, you know, melting and turning it into a concrete type of uh, you know material and then pouring it. I think you can achieve this type of precision that uh, that oh, yeah. we see right across the world. It makes sense to me. Metallurgy. I mean, it's basically that's what Jeffrey Boyd was, was, was a metallurgy. Dr. Yeah. Sam is has been a proponent of the rocks were molded mm -hmm. for many, many years. And There's so, yeah, evidence can, of that at uh, yeah. at the Bosnian pyramids, like the river valley there. Yeah. Uh, I had a gentleman on here by the name of uh, Jock Doubleday, and uh, he was uh, Dr. Sam's uh, videographer, and uh, he spent uh, about a year and a half in Bosnia uh, exploring the uh, riverbeds and uh, the pyramids in itself, and he came to a conclusion that uh, the riverbeds were artificially created uh, using, uh, you know, some sort of an ancient uh, concrete, and uh, and and he laid out his evidence, and uh, sure, it looks like that to me. 
No, I mean, I think the basic fact of all what were any of the ancient mystery stuff is they had technology that has been lost or forgotten. End of story. How do you think it was lost? Well, again, we get back to how many thousand, what you said, how really old are those sites? That's right. We're told they're four and five thousand years old. Well, maybe they're a lot (laughs) older. And then, you know, the big cataclysms, you know, which would have destroyed, you know, whatever civilizations were there. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're going to have Michael Cremo on and Michael and the, the Vedic philosophy is, We've done this many times, destroyed, rebuilt over a thousand years, destroyed. You know, it's we just don't know. I think my take on it is that, um, you know, thousands of years ago, uh, something, you know, happened to us as uh, as a species and our planet went into an ice age. And, uh, you know, we turned into essentially an ice ball planet and uh, we were forced to go and live underground in, uh, you know, cities like Derinkuyu uh, in Turkey. And I think having lived, you know, a number of generations underground, I think that's how personally I think the knowledge was lost, that it wasn't really, you know, passed on from, uh, you know, one person to the next person uh, and because of the cataclysmic events that uh, that we had here on Earth that uh, really caused this amnesia type of state that uh, that we're currently in yeah i mean you know velikovsky is the you know the famous you know come Earth up crust displacement saying, yeah. Ma- yeah mankind in amnesia yeah you know, and it it, it true you know and you get any of the the people that are out there working in in the arena it just goes on and on of the different theories and ideas who you know who were these people? How did they do what they did? And again, I think the the missing cat, cat, catalyst would be how far back was it really? You know, that's the yeah, that's the that's the catalyst. big question. And I think uh, you know personally, uh, you know, if we really put our heads together, I think we will be able to find that answer um, at the Sphinx uh, in uh, in Egypt because. You know, we know that the Sphinx was buried in sand for uh, thousands of years and the as water were, damage. As were those pyramids. That's those right. Pyramids. And for water damage to happen the way, you know, Robert, the way uh, Dr. Salk is saying uh, and in the timeline that he is saying, it's uh, it's not possible because, uh, you know, they would have had to have been exposed uh, to the elements for thousands of years and then buried in uh, in sand, and then again rediscovered in the 18th century. So, when we look at um, you know like weather maps and uh, and weather history uh, going back several thousand years, and that's what I was saying. You know, like I've dated the pyramids myself. You know, I'm thinking towards like more like eight million years, because at about eight million years ago, there was a jet stream that was going above uh, North Africa, and more predominantly, it was going over Egypt. You know, if we got Africa here, come yeah, down yeah. like that. And what's happened is that we've looked at evidence in Central Africa, where today it's green. It has shown that millions of years ago, that that part of Central Africa was a desert, just like uh, Egypt is today. Now, what I think is happening is that that the jet stream moved further south to where Congo and all those uh, Central African countries are. And the jet stream, of course, brought rain with it and turned the desert into the green lush land it is today. 
and caused drought in uh, in North Africa and uh, and then made it turn into a desert. And during the time the jet stream was above North Africa and it was raining, you know, tropical rains and that may possibly explain the damage that's been caused to the Sphinx. Uh, water damage. We know it's water damage, but uh, you know that's the only thing that really makes sense. So if we take that theory into consideration, then we're looking at something like a timeline of like eight million years. You know, like around the Tortonian age. Uh, you know, we have uh, sand dunes that uh, are about eight million years old as well. Um, you know, a lot of evidence is, uh, you know, in my opinion, points to to that theory that you know the pyramids are at least a minimum you know at the very minimum eight million years old and when we look at that you know we know that there's civilizations prior to that like you were saying michael cremo he's looked into it and he's discovered uh you know artifacts uh same thing with uh klaus donna that date back millions and millions and millions of years yeah i mean there's there's just no question about the possibility and i mean it's at least twelve thousand twenty five. 30,000, 80,000, and then if you get into the millions, which uh, a lot of people just find uh, un, unacceptable, but fantastical the there. Yeah, yeah. And I, I got to bring up a site that nobody mentions because we can't get there, and that's the uh, Indus Valley sites, the Mohenjo-Daro. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Those are some of the – that may be the answer to a lot of what we are, are – researching and talking about but we can't get there safely that nuclear explosion sure. brother yeah yeah that's what it's pointing and, to that there was a nuclear explosion and there's uh skeletons on the ground uh that yeah. uh, look like uh what uh, we see it uh, seen at uh, hiroshima and uh nagasaki uh where people's shadow was burnt into uh into the ground and yeah. uh you know the bones that they recovered are uh, radioactive right that's bizarre you know, like, and, how and is that sites, possible? Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> you can go back to the, the Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible. Everything yeah, in Krishna. story, yeah, it, it's, it points to a nuclear blast. Uh, yeah, we could go to Krishna. We could go yeah. to, uh, what's his, uh, what's the other guy's name? Uh, the one with Rama. Uh, Rama yeah. with, uh, with his uh, blue monkey army. That's all Vedic as well. See, everything really goes yeah. back to Vedic, eh, Bruce? Oh, that's, everything. That's you know, even when you look at Egypt. Modern. Uh, even even when I was at the Plain of Jars in Laos, uh, the, the, the few what you would call lids, because those weren't jars, of course, uh, had the spiral and the swastika on some of them. So, again, looks Vedic. And uh, everything after meeting Jeffrey, everything at the Plain of Jars, and that is a big-time uh, mining site for the Chinese to this day. And it sure makes sense that those jars, and there's another site, in Indonesia and another one in Colombia that are, is identical, that they were some kind of metallurgy process. That's that is what uh, people like Jeffrey and myself would think, and that's surely what they look like. Yeah, Jeffrey's explained that in uh, some of the shows that we've done. Uh, you know, he talked about his metallurgy, and uh, I believe we got into uh, the geopolymer too at uh, at some given time. But uh, you know, to me, Bruce, that really seems to be. Uh, you know, really the answer to, you know, the complications that we're looking at, right? Like, how did these people move all these stones and we're creating all these, uh, 
you know, scenarios and experiments and such, uh, like uh, moving the Moai, for instance, you know, just moving it from side to side, making it walk, you know, things like that. Uh, it just doesn't make any sense to me. You know, what makes sense is that they melted it, they tossed it uh, into forms. Uh, that's why they're so perfect. Uh, you know, even like the obelisks that we see, you know, it would have been a lot easier for these guys to, you know, build a form, pour the concrete in there, pour the stone in there, and then while it's wet, come in with their writing right with their stamps and just stamp we, them in and we, that's it we we couldn't move those obelisks with all the technology we have today yeah i mean there's so much of that it it's and the, the stuff in peru the the fact is it comes from on the other side of the mountain all those 100 and 200 pound stones why would anybody do something that difficult? Why? It would, yeah, it wouldn't make yeah, any kind I, of sense. I always try to make my job as easy as possible. But, you know, when we're, since we're talking about that, and we were talking about uh, Mohenjo-Daro, when we look at the architecture of Mohenjo-Daro, uh, they're using small bricks, right? Uh, kind of like what we see in the late period in the Egyptian uh, the architecture work where they went to smaller bricks, right? We're seeing that at Mohenjo-Daro. So when we look at that type of architecture there, we don't associate the two together with technology, right? Uh, for instance, like nuclear technology that we were just talking about a few yeah, minutes yeah. ago, right? And then when we look at the actual structures on the ground, it just doesn't look high tech, right? Like the way it looks in Cambodia or in South America or in Peru. Why is that? Oh, I would I would disagree with it. I've been to the Ayataya site in Thailand, which is just just outside of Bangkok. And some of these towers and buildings have literally hundreds of thousands of those bricks you're talking about. That's, yeah. that's high tech. That's not just a few bricks. We're talking yeah. you know, hundreds of thousands. Yeah, and that's a good is, point. A process. A, yeah, a very high technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, my my question is not to like demean the uh, you know the structure in itself. You know, my question is, is that we have these sites that are you know so elaborate, like you were saying at uh, Angkor Wat, right? Uh, we go and look at some temples in uh, India, or uh, you know the uh, the churches that are in uh, Kenya, and uh, you know in South America the same type of construction doesn't seem to have been applied. Like when we look at the, it's other other cultures and we can say, okay, well, it was the same builder because the design looks uh, almost similar to, you know, this site and that site and this site. But when we look at Mohenjo-Daro, the, you know, it more points towards like the, uh, you know, like the uh, Zagard of Ur, right? Uh, that type of uh, uh, structure. And, and how big, when you look at, the Indus Valley civilization, it was huge. It was most of Pakistan and half of India. Most of it hasn't been discovered. Yeah. I mean, you can't get in there. You know, Pakistan is so very dangerous to get in there. That Afghanistan being right next to it. Yeah. yeah, there you go. And, and, and there's so much of it that just hasn't been discovered. I mean, the, the researchers from India, they're not even allowed in the country. And for us, it would be very dangerous. And of course, now it's obsolete right this minute. But hopefully, we're as we said, hopefully things stabilize one day soon. Yeah, hopefully and, those guys, you know, I got heritage that goes to Pakistan. My dad is from there. So, uh, you oh, know, that okay. site, uh, that site kind of resonates with me, right? Uh, you know, my dad's from uh, Lahore, Pakistan. And, uh, and my mom is uh, Native American. 
right? So uh, when we talk about Mahanjadaro, you know, it kind it really resonates with me, and and I really wish that uh, these people would snap out of their, you know, the Stone Age thinking of just violence and murder and uh, you know being mean to other people and just come together and learn about our collective history because there's so much there, like you were saying, you know, up in the Indus Valley. There's so much there to be discovered to answer the questions about our past that we just don't have safe access to. And if you don't have safe access, you know, you got to be out of your mind to go there. And, you know, I don't think anybody in our field is uh, crazy enough, except for maybe Dr. Sam. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, there is little doubt Dr. Sam has probably been to more pyramids than any living being in the history of the known world anyway i mean yeah, he's the, the most traveled archaeologist oh my, gosh. <laughs> my gosh with with little doubt yeah now, he's an incredible I, guy yeah there, there's an indian researcher that has got some pictures i have posted before on some of the sites of a what appears to be a sphinx with no question about it it appears to be a sphinx oh they're again, in pakistan no one yeah can, yeah, yeah no one can get in there to to check it out. Yeah, that's like near uh, Karachi. Uh, it's not too far. It's about uh, I think two hundred miles northwest of uh, of Karachi. I know exactly the one that you're talking about. There's actually two or three of them uh, that are there. Uh, you know, they look like uh, women, uh, women sphinx. And then you know, when we think about that, there's sphinx in Pakistan. When we go a little bit, uh, you know, further east to uh, Sri Lanka. Right, uh, we have that huge granite plug that John Shaughnessy talks about, and then right next to that granite plug is uh, the remnants of an ancient sphinx. The only thing that's left there is uh, now feet of uh, of this huge, huge sphinx. Hmm. Yeah, it's you know, I, of all the places, you know, I would put Mohenjo-Daro and Harappapan on my bucket list too, if it ever become possible to get there. <laughs> Hopefully, in our right lifetime. Now, oh. Right now, it's looking grim to go to any ancient site here in the next few years. But again, let's hope for the people to start thinking with reason again. <laughs> yeah, you know, personally, I don't think, uh, you know, international travel like the way we had it in uh, 2019 is uh, going to be happening, uh, you know, anytime soon, maybe in, uh, you know, small portions. Things will open up, but uh, nothing in... Uh, full scale like the way we had it and that kind of leads me into uh, what we're doing uh, on uh, March 27th, 28th and uh, the 29th. Uh, we've uh, put together a uh, 28 speaker 6 MC summit and we're going to investigate the question who are we as a people from every single possible angle that we can you know, investigate this question by looking at food sciences and looking at hypnotism and yoga, uh, looking at, uh, you know, ancient archaeology, uh, anomalies around the world and in South America, uh, you know, Shuve caves, uh, things like that. So it's going to be, uh, you know, a fantastic event that's coming up. Bruce is going to be my co-host there. So, uh, you know, during the, uh, you know, towards the later evening, he's going to be my co-host because, uh, you know, when we go live at eight o'clock it's going to be like uh, one o'clock in the morning for him and uh, there's no way he's uh, he's up to par for that one in, in, fact, in, fa in fact it's already saint patty's day here that's why i have this green that's why i have this green shirt on we're already at saint patty's day here i'm already <laughs> celebrating right here actually one of my good friends just stopped by i'm at a restaurant called sailor's pub that uh is the sponsor 
for my uh, beach volleyball team's uniforms. And a good friend of mine, Jimmy, just stopped by with him and his wife. And uh, I can't talk to him because I'm talking to you. But uh, when we get off the air, I will be. And yeah, we're, so... we're almost done here, Bruce. Uh, we're hitting the one-hour mark. Uh, okay. I don't want to hold you too long. And, uh, you know, 9 o'clock for me is, uh, you know, it's a late show for me because usually I'm, uh, you know, on at 6 and uh, off by 8 o'clock. But, uh, you know, in this case, this was a special show close to my heart. I really wanted to have you on here. And uh, this was also a, a, a trial run uh, for us for, uh, you know, the coming summit uh, next uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, we wanted to make sure that uh, your connection was good because you're going to be interviewing uh, Dr. Sam and uh, interviewing Valerie. And, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, you're going to be there with me with uh, Michael Cremo. So, uh, you know, this was a, a successful successful run and uh, you know and i appreciate the knowledge and uh, you know the information tidbits that uh, that you give us uh, in order for us to uh, to really connect the dots uh, so guys uh, thank you very much for uh, tuning in and uh, the if i could say one last thing yeah go ahead I, bruce i'm so happy to be back in the arena i've been out of for a while and to let the listeners know i have been what i have been doing is organizing girls high school and elementary school volleyball here uh you know it's a very poor country and that that is what i've been doing with my time and i'm i'm trying to make a difference and it's, it's been a blast and now i'm really happy to be back in the arena buddy yeah that's awesome and also before i forget uh i'm going to be uh putting a link a paypal link in the uh, description of this video guys uh, we're trying to raise some funds for uh, bruce's uh volleyball endeavors in the philippines uh you know with uh, school children so that they have an opportunity to exercise get uh you know transportation uniforms uh things like that so uh you know a donation would be uh, much appreciated I'll be uh, putting that link uh, in the description in, uh, you know, after the show is over. So if you guys can, uh, you know, donate a buck or two or five, uh, that would be uh, fantastic. Because in America, five bucks is really nothing. But, uh, you know, in the Philippines, uh, you know, five dollars takes you, uh, you know, takes you a long ways. Uh, so I hope you guys, uh, you know, definitely uh, consider that. I would be uh, really appreciated. Uh, you know, and if you guys do, uh, you know, once the link is up, uh, let me know that, uh, you know, that you've uh, donated. And, uh, you know, send me your email address and I will give you a free ticket to uh, our uh, upcoming summit on uh, on uh, March 27th. So, uh, you know, make a donation. I don't care what it is. Dollar, five dollars, fifty dollars. Uh, make a donation. Uh, contact me and I will send you a ticket. So, uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, we can raise some money to, uh, you know, help some kids. Uh, that would be fantastic. And you're doing a great job there, Bruce. Uh, you know, running this program where when... You know, in the middle of this uh, situation that we're in and, uh, you know, governors and kind of what have you are not allowing it. But you're like persevering through this and making sure that these kids have adequate recreation to, uh, you know, really keep this terrible time that we're going through off of their mind. So it doesn't really disrupt their lives. So, you know, that's some good work you're doing there, brother. Uh, yeah. that, you know, it's fantastic. The, the, the current president of the Philippines has got a school band and a sports band going on now over a year with no end in sight. And I believe that these kids have the God given right to play recreational sports. And I, I'm trying to do all I can. And, and I'm getting a lot of support uh, with the different politicians on the Island. I live and that's been very nice and it's and, and helpful. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, keep my, uh, you know, thoughts in your mind, guys. Uh, you know, I'll be providing that link here pretty soon. 
uh, make a donation and uh, send me your email and uh, I will uh, send you guys a ticket to the upcoming summit. So with that being said, thank you very much, guys. I really uh, appreciate you guys. I love you guys very much uh, for your time, for watching us. Uh, I know in the East Coast it's pretty late, so I appreciate uh, your time. Uh, my name is Omar coming at you guys from uh, West Coast, British Columbia. Canada with my good buddy Bruce Cunningham of Ancient Mysteries International coming at you guys from San Francisco, Cebu Island, Philippines. Much love you guys. Stay safe out there and uh you know go ahead and uh you know purchase a ticket or uh, you know share the uh you know video around and uh, you know help us uh, defeat this uh you know algorithm that uh, that we're all fighting. Uh, nobody likes being shadow banned and uh, you know all we're trying to do is uh, spread some information so that uh, we can better understand ourselves. So I love you guys all. Thank you very much. And uh, I will catch you guys tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow, do I have a show tomorrow? I don't think I have a show tomorrow. But uh, on Thursday, I have a show with, uh, I have a panel coming up. We're going to be talking about Gnosticism. Uh, that's going to be with uh, Stephen and Evan Strong, Leah Capitelli, uh, Michael Feely, and Rodney McGilvery. All right, guys, tune in for that. That is a 2 o'clock afternoon matinee uh, right here on uh, Watchers Talk. So uh, keep an eye out for that. And uh, stay safe out there, guys. Uh, you know, it's uh, precarious times that we live in. Much love to you all, and uh, we'll uh, catch you later. Don't hang up, Bruce. All right.